Hello. Hello. Hello, and welcome to Grace Online. We're really excited for you to be able to receive an encouraging word from Scripture today. Because we know that God is already here, and He is ready to be with you. And let's get ready to hear today's message. Have you ever become so engaged, so captured by a story, a story conveyed through a novel or a series on TV or a movie that you've been tempted to skip to the end? Despite living at a time when so many are obsessed with spoiler alerts, with not giving away the conclusion of a story, some people like to start with the end, to read the end of the story first. Often children, when you're sharing a story with them, right, they'll get so immersed in the tale, they'll get so excited about it, that they'll just blurt out, they can't help themselves, but how does it end? And then, as they're told to wait and find out, children will inevitably, out of the mixture of both their impatience and their imagination, they'll keep trying to guess what comes next, to figure out how it all ends. Sometimes we just can't wait. We just can't wait to see how the story ends. Sometimes when we fall in love with the story, we worry if, if, if we'll be let down by the ending. I mean, after all, a bad ending, if the final payoff isn't there, if the big finish doesn't ring true, a bad ending ruins the whole story. And so we can be tempted to read the last chapter first. And while there are critics who argue that skipping ahead spoils the story, Researchers at the University of California's psychology department in San Diego in a 2011 study discovered that doing so, skipping to the end, has a different effect, not ruining, but actually enhancing the journey. For those who learn how it all ends, it enables them to enjoy a deeper and better experience of the story. This insight resonates with how the narrative of the Bible itself is presented. God gives us his story, our story, not in an open-ended form, not in terms of a cliffhanger, but with a definitive and certain ending. And we find that grand epic conclusion in a book called Revelation. The Lord enables us to skip to the conclusion, to see how everything finally comes together so that we can enjoy a deeper and better experience between now and then. But sadly, this is not how the book of Revelation is either perceived or received within the community of faith. We've missed the point of having the end of the story. We fail to understand that God gives the end so that our lives in and with him can actually begin. Let's read and listen together to the first few verses of that part of the story. Chapter 1, the introductory remarks of the last book of the Bible so that we can begin to see, to better understand what we're missing. Here they are from Revelation chapter 1. Hello, please join me in today's reading from Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, 
Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look. He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, and those who pierced him, and all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, Write on a scroll what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our sermon series this fall specifically is going to focus on the first part of the book of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3, which together contain what are known as Jesus' words or letters to the seven churches. This collection of letters is addressed to seven churches back in the day that formed a rough circle in what is now called Asia Minor, or modern-day Turkey. And while there were more than seven churches in that district back then, these seven were selected to be representative, not only of the churches of that day, but also of all churches of any day, for the whole body of Christ across both space and time. Now, in order to read and fully understand these letters in the weeks to come, we're going to spend the next two weeks in chapter one, getting oriented to this book as a whole. And we'll begin by acknowledging that the last chapter of the story of the Bible has caused a lot of controversy and fear, dividing people in the church rather than bringing them together. This cloudy and mysterious work filled with talk and descriptions of angels and four horsemen, a dragon and a beast of seals being broken open and a great lake of fire and judgment, because of all these startling images, there tend to be one of two dispositions when it comes to reading and studying the book of Revelation. The first is to first forcefully apply some interpretive key upon the book and then work out elaborate systems and charts for understanding the vision John receives to the point where all we think about, all we talk about as a follower of Jesus is the book of Revelation or the end times. The second extreme, is to become so confused, so intimidated, or just plain frustrated by all the enigmatic visual content, the seeming doom and gloom that drips off the page, that we finally throw up our hands, abandon our study, and ignore the presence of this book altogether. So in short, and quite ironically, what we're left with in these two extremes is some people avoid reading Revelation while others read nothing else in their Bible but the book of Revelation. So let's take a moment and briefly address both of these extremes and where they get off track. First, if we follow Jesus, we can't ignore or avoid this book because contrary to how it's often titled and presented, this is not the revelation of John the Apostle. As it is clearly stated in the opening verses, what is contained in this book is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's his self-revelation, further teaching and insight 
offered to us from the one to whom we look to and follow for our life and salvation. And notice, Jesus extends this revelation to us, not on his own, but just as Jesus did when he was first with us on this earth. Jesus the Son only extends to us wisdom and insight that he first received from the Father. It was given to him by God the Father to reveal to his servants, his followers, us. If Christ is our master and our teacher, if Christ is our Lord and Savior, how can we possibly choose to ignore or neglect anything he shares with us? No, what Jesus offers us is for a reason, and that reason is declared in verse 3 of the first chapter. We are urged not to avoid or ignore what is in this book, but rather to hear and take to heart its contents in order to be blessed. Now, next week, we're going to explore the content of this book, the particular word, the overall vision that Christ gives to John, and its message for us as framed in chapter 1. Today, we're going to be focusing on the unique perspective of the book of Revelation, the unique perspective that the book provides us, a perspective we often get backward. Because you see, what's outlined in just the first three verses of the opening book, chapter of this book, is that reading and understanding it blesses us. It's for our good, for our betterment, for wholeness and fullness of light, to clear things up, not to make them confusing, but that's not normally what comes to most people's minds when they think of this book. For example, Revelation is often referred to both in and outside the church as the book about the apocalypse. We hear the word apocalypse and we immediately associate that word apocalypse with catastrophe, with disaster, destruction, death on a global scale, fire and brimstone coming down from the skies, rivers and seas boiling over, years and years of darkness, earthquakes, volcanoes, the dead rising from the grave, cats and dogs living together, mass hysteria. We imagine all this when in fact the word apocalypse is simply the original title of this book. A Greek word, apocalypse, means an unveiling, a disclosure, an uncovering, a revelation. Through John, Jesus wants to reveal something to his people, a different perspective, in terms of both where we are in this present moment and where we are going in the future. What Jesus reveals to John is a glimpse of the answer to one of the petitions Jesus taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer. Do you remember it? Jesus taught us to pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The unique perspective of the book of Revelation is how heaven and earthly realities are intersecting with earthly or linear ones. How heaven and earth ultimately will merge as one. Now, because we're not used to looking at life and all creation in this way, the perspective that Revelation provides can be initially disorienting. Much like putting on a pair of prescription glasses, it can take a bit of time to adjust our point of view. For many, it's actually the highly visual nature of Revelation that obscures their understanding of this book. In verse 1, when it says, He made it known, referring to Jesus extending this revelation to John, this phrase, He made it known, is actually a translation of a Greek word that means he signified it, or if you will, he signified it. Jesus offers this new perspective by way of signs and symbols. But why? Why, we ask, why doesn't Jesus speak plainly? Why doesn't Jesus just tell it straight out? Why all the signs and the symbols? Well, one of the reasons for all the signs and the symbols is that, again, 
Jesus is offering John a perspective of the present and the future viewed not from our human linear perspective of history, but from the divine, eternal, and therefore non-linear perspective of all things. To capture and convey the view from heaven, a perspective outside of space and time, Jesus communicates to John less with words, which are inadequate to the task, and rather through imagery, word pictures. And if we think about it, this makes sense. We often do the same thing. We often resort to symbols and visuals when we are describing something that lies outside the experience of another person, say, a place they've never been before, they have no frame of reference for. What Jesus is unveiling is beyond the conception or imagination of any human being, including John, who lived in the first century AD. Therefore, Jesus doesn't so much tell, but rather shows John another perspective on reality. Now, something important to recognize is Jesus doesn't just flash to John and by extension flash to us some random images and symbols that are just now suddenly being introduced. No, Jesus visually communicates to and through John by means of familiar images and symbols that are drawn from and reused in a consistent manner with other divine encounters we find in the Bible, specifically, most of them, the Old Testament. John is writing out of what Jesus reveals to him, and he'll often make statements, you'll notice, he'll make statements along these lines. What the Lord showed me in this vision was kind of like that. The like that John is referring to, both for his original audience and for us, the like that that John is referring to are identical images or symbols that are earlier witnessed in the story of Israel and the church, or previously evoked by prophets like Isaiah and Daniel. You see, reading and understanding Revelation is impossible if we don't know the whole story leading up to the last chapter. Nothing makes sense. It is confusing. It is confusing if we try to just skip to the end of the book without ever going back and taking in all that came before. It's only when we seriously pay attention and digest the whole story of God, the story of us, that our eyes can adjust and we can see what John sees. We can perceive what Jesus seeks to show us in the book of Revelation. And once again, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ, not John. This bears repeating again and again, especially as we now consider the other extreme when it comes to this book. Not of avoidance, but of decoding revelation, crafting some sort of apocalyptic timeline and predicting the calendar date for the end of the world. Many people come to the book of Revelation looking for answers, answers about what's going to happen in the future, looking for clues to determine when the countdown begins, when we have started living in the end times. For centuries, this has been a misguided stock and trade within the church. It's been a misguided stock and trade despite Jesus himself, the same Jesus through whom John is offered this revelation, this same Jesus telling us repeatedly that we cannot know all the details, the hour or the day of the end of the world as we know it. Not surprisingly, and despite what many claim, the revelation itself that Jesus extends to us through this book gives us no specific dates and no particular names by which to interpret the present or to predict the future. And yet, despite all of that, despite Jesus teaching us, commanding us not to worry about the future, but instead to live for the Lord in light of the present, and despite all this, 
There are some who remain obsessed with studying the book of Revelation at the expense of paying attention, hearing and obeying, being continually reoriented and transformed by the rest of God's word. Refusing to receive what Jesus provides in this final vision, many are tempted to fix and fill in what is unknown. I mean, we can so easily succumb to the tendency to just twist and arrange the word of God to hear what we want to hear, to see what we want to see. And the book of Revelation is no different. And when we do that, when we attempt to force the immense vision and message of Revelation into the narrow confines of our end times point of view, rather than to yield and abide in the radically broader perspective on life and creation that Jesus offers us, such reductionism is to treat this book, the book of Revelation, as nothing more than a fortune teller, just some psychic forecast. My friends, there's a reason why predictions about the end of the world have had a 100% failure rate. There's a reason why this is the date prophecies come with an angstful bang, but always go with a disappointing whimper. Because despite of a lot of best-selling books, Despite a lot of insistent prophets who try and tell us otherwise, the point of the book of Revelation is not to literally or chronologically decipher and break down how every verse, every symbol, every number in the book lines up. Revelation is not about chronology as much as it is theology. Revelation is not about having the key to predict the future or to interpret the signs of the times. It's less of the disclosure of the timetable of history and more the disclosure of an inside look at the reality of history. That things are not all that they appear to be. That where it looks like we are headed is not, in fact, where we are going. That there are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in our philosophy. There is more to this present moment and to the future than we can know with, un our, with our unaided senses. So therefore, Revelation is not about making predictions. It's rather the gift of perception, the gift of gaining a perspective that is not shaped by our linear and chronological notions of time, but shaped by the Lord of all time, the God who is, as he self-proclaims himself to be in verse 8, the Alpha and the Omega. Alpha and Omega are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. The implication here is God declares himself to be the beginning and the end of everything. God is the beginning, not only the first in a sequence, not only the origin or source of all life. God as the beginning means that God is the pattern, the embodiment, the exemplar of all existence. God is the one who initiates and shapes all things, creation, humanity, history, and salvation. God is the beginning and God is the end. God is the end means that God is not only the last one standing when everything else and everyone else is said and done, but that God is the ultimate goal, the inevitable result, the inherent purpose and destiny of all things. But for God to proclaim himself to be the Alpha and the Omega, what we might say as the A to Z, it expresses even more than this, more than a finite string of letters, lest we be tempted to view God in such linear terms as some absentee landlord, some deity who is there from the start and sets everything in motion, the Alpha, but then disappears, receding from the scene, only coming around to be the Omega at the end, showing up when the rent comes due. In case we're liable to think that, God expands our perspective in this first chapter as he declares himself to be not only the Alpha and the Omega, but the one who is, who was, and who is to come. 
In other words, God is not only the Lord of everything in between A to Z. God is not only the Lord of all that takes place in the course of creation. God is the Lord of everything that ever was or is or ever will be. Nothing is excluded from God's will and purpose, including time. God is beyond time. In the spirit of the book of Revelation, let's consider the eternal nature of God by means of visual aid. Consider two ends of a string, the beginning and the end. But now consider the ends of a string so that they make a circle. Now the beginning and the end are the same point on the circle. That is the nature of God. God's beginning and end are the exact same thing, and yet... God has no beginning and no end. So God is the beginning and the end of everything. More significantly, this description, this visual, helps us to appreciate the divine perspective that Jesus offers us through the book of Revelation. Whereas we keep looking and trying to understand this book in terms of a conclusion, what John is seeing, what John is trying to capture through his writing, is the paradox of ending and beginning. The vision Jesus gives to John describes the end of all things as we know them, while at the same time describing what is happening from God's perspective as the beginning of something new. Is your head spinning yet? (laughs) Mine too. We tend to see these things in a linear fashion within time. Yesterday, today, tomorrow, we're a very in-the-moment kind of people. As a result, What God in Christ has promised, what Jesus told us is going to happen, it can seem far away, out of reach. For us, the beginning and the end of the universe are two horizons. We live at a distance from the horizon. We can see a point on the horizon from a distance, but we don't know what it's like until we get there. And it's because of our limited perspective that we get caught up again in one of two extremes. Extremes that relate, once more, to how we approach the book of Revelation. We either get so anxious or frustrated about the future that we ignore it. We just finally, you know, we just live for the present, whatever. We live as if there's no consequences, there's no tomorrow, as if our story just fades out, as if there is no definitive ending. Or we go the other way, right? We go the other way. We become so fixated on the future We get so fixated on what happens next and and when and how that we just keep working and sweating and trying to manage and control the future. And all the while we miss and forsake living in the moment, responding to what or more importantly who is right in front of us. We think we can predict how tomorrow is going to play out. We convince ourselves we can run the table and make our own luck until eventually we discover our mortality, the fragility of life, and the limits of our own power. In the midst of living according to these two extremes, Jesus offers us an entirely different perspective. Jesus, through John, gives us some eternal perspective, a vision outside of time, a vision not just of the future, what is coming later, but of how the future is already breaking into the present, how the forces of heaven are interceding now. That's the point of view of eternity. Eternity, eternity is not infinite, endless time. Eternity is no time. There is no past or future with God. All is present with God. The Lord doesn't take a day off or get backlogged. All events are present to God and the Lord moves and acts presently. It's our perspective, framed again by time, that distorts our perception 
and therefore makes us perceive that God is somehow delayed, that God is somehow absent. An analogy that I often find helpful is to think of a parade. I love the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, so think of that one. If you're on the street for that parade, you see all the various floats, the giant balloons and the marching bands as they pass by you in sequence. You only experience what is right in front of you. If, however, you were high up in one of the buildings overlooking the parade route, you'd be able to see the entire parade. Now, it's all present to you. By our sight alone, we can only perceive and experience one event at a time. But from God's vantage point, in terms of how the Lord works, all events are present, happening now. Consider the work of the cross. People often ask, well, what about those of faith who died before Jesus' work on the cross? We can't go back in time, so what about them? Well, the salvation Jesus accomplished on the cross and through the resurrection is eternal. It's not limited by time. Hence, in that moment on the cross, Jesus saves both those who looked forward to him in faith in the past, just as he saves we who look back to him in faith from the future. What John describes as a vision of the future is the reality of God working, bringing what we perceive as the future into the midst of what we call the present. And my friends, this perspective changes everything. It changes everything. Among every generation of Christians, there always seems to be this continual wonder and questioning about when Jesus is coming back. We ask this, even though in the first chapter of this book, in verse 7, look at it, Every generation of Christians are told, we're told along with John, not that Jesus will come, but rather, look, he, Jesus, is coming. Beloved, Jesus isn't sitting on the throne passively waiting for some future date. Jesus is on the move now. Christ's return is happening at this very moment. Seeing this, understanding this, shifts our perspective on how we perceive all that is happening around us. Again, there's a tendency in the church to profess and evangelize belief in the hope of our ultimate redemption in Christ, while at the same time, in the here and now, we as Christians live and breathe the same cynical spirit of the age. Reading Revelation from the wrong perspective We as Christians even add our own religious spin to all the negativity and pessimism out there by assigning God's judgment to every violent or sudden disruption to our lives. And we therefore then will add predicting that things will get worse rather than get, get better. And we shake our heads and we wag our fingers and we wring our hands and we join everybody else in living with a defeated weariness, a numbness toward life. We find ourselves observing and critiquing, but we rarely engage or show any grace. In shielding ourselves from a world we believe is going to hell, we reflect not a gospel of generous hope, but one of paralyzing fear. But what if our perspective is all wrong? What if, as Revelation declares, what's coming, what's happening now, is not so much about the end, but rather the emergence of a new beginning. What if, instead of always looking for a death, we started anticipating a birth? What if, 
We perceived all the disruption and disorder that we continue to witness in this world, in all creation, not as a sign of the devil having his day, not as a sign of the reign of evil being unchecked, but rather as the inevitable birth pangs of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God, of the Lord taking back all that's been lost, breaking down and remaking all that stands in opposition to what is good, right, just, and true. What if we glimpse the vision the book, of the, Re- the book of Revelation provides through the lens it calls us to look through? And that lens that we're called to look through this vision in is the vision of the cross and the resurrection. On the cross, Jesus declared, it is finished. And that was indeed true. The power of sin was broken and Jesus died for us all. And yet, on the cross, in that instant, even though we could not first perceive it, the cross was also a beginning, even as it was an ending. The end of life brought the beginning of life. Both were happening at the same time. As three days later, the resurrection of Christ proclaimed both death's defeat, end, and the inauguration of a new and everlasting life, beginning. So what if? What if Revelation is not about preparing for the end times, but rather recognizing we're already living them now? That we are in the throes of the end of life as we know it, even as, at the same time, Jesus is making all things new. Seeking to create heaven on earth through us, we who follow him. Many times when hardship comes, we have our own plans for how to handle it. We have a plan A, B, C, D, and sometimes even E. And it's only after we have exhausted all those options, our plans, that we finally find ourselves in that place where we can begin to see things differently, to be led by the Lord's perspective. Billy Graham once said, when we come to the end of ourselves, we come to the beginning of God. So what if? What if the vision of Revelation is about Jesus one last time, calling us to come to the end of ourselves, relinquishing what we think we know, letting go of all our to-do lists in the present, releasing our contingency plans for the future, surrendering our perception of control, and finally, at last, coming and yielding to the beginning of God's grace? Better late than never, beloved. Jesus is at the door of our lives knocking because in the end, that is the true mark of discipleship. The beginning of following Jesus and growing in Christ is when our story becomes his story. When our life becomes connected and empowered, not by the limits of what we can see temporally, but by the vision of how the Lord is bringing his eternal promises for us into our here and now. Perception, as they say, is reality. And the question is, whose point of view are you taking? Are you living based upon what you can see or out of what the Lord has shown us? Are we hopelessly waiting for our future with God in Christ to come? Or are we living hopefully out of the vision we have been given of our future that has already started? Because you see, with every new breath of life, another chapter begins to be written. With every move that Christ makes towards us, every conversation, every encounter with Jesus, the word becomes flesh anew. With every act of justice, with every expression of mercy, with every movement of compassion, every gesture of divine love, the kingdom of God comes nearer, closer to us all. My friends, 
the eternal perspective of Revelation enables us to see that God's story is never really finished. It's only just beginning. It keeps being written with the story of your life and mine and the lives of those still to come. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you would like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org.